Welcome to season nine of Focus on Women. So excited to share that Tidy Books is here to help all of us do our bookkeeping faster, better, and get it off our plates. If you ever feel like you're not a numbers person, or maybe you feel the stress and dread over your finances, Tidy Books is here to help. Tidy Books provides monthly bookkeeping services to help you be as hands off as you want to be with your finances, but still have the big picture of your business at any time of the year. If this sounds intriguing to you, contact Tanya for a free consultation and 50% off your first month of bookkeeping with the code TIDY50. You can find Tanya's contact information in the show notes or go to tidybooksboutique.com. Again, the code is TIDY50. You can contact Tanya at tidybooksboutique.com forward slash contact. Now on to the show. This is Tracy with Focus on Women, and I'm here today with Micah Morton. She is based in Brooklyn, New York, and she is on the Big Leo roster. As many of you know, Big Leo is one of our co-founders of Focus on Women. I'm super excited to talk to her. She is a food stylist, a recipe developer, a dancer, an actress, I think. She's got a great story of how she came to follow her passion and her love for cooking. So welcome, Micah. Hello. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Sure. So take us back. Are you originally from New York? And, you know, did you always know you had a love for food and cooking? Or did you start your career first? I think you started your career first, maybe in dance and stuff like that. But tell us a little bit how yes. you got to where you are. Well, I'm a California girl. I'm from Los Angeles, born and raised. I went to performing arts high school. I went to Crossroads, sort of the school in terms of Hollywood stuff, right? <laughs> to put it mildly. And yeah, I, I started out thinking I was going to be one type of artist and morphed into another over many years. So cooking, my family is a family that has a lot of cultures. And so my parents cooked all the time. And we were expected to cook too. And we had to make things for ourselves that we wanted that might be special because my parents weren't making special food. <laughs> so that was kind of the beginning, being allowed to turn on the stove and do things and do things with my family, but also just by myself because I'm a natural baker. I always was, and that was because no one in my house baked. My mom didn't believe in white flour, white sugar. <laughs> so I had a lot of challenges in that area. You know, we ate very well in terms of uh, savory foods. You know, my dad even made hot sauce all the time and things like that. But desserts was not happening. So that's kind of where I began to bake for real, was just realizing that I could interpret a recipe and I was pretty good at just sort of understanding how things work. Wow. So was that kind of at a young age or how old were you when you? Yeah, I would say about seven or eight. 
you know, I was already making pancakes and things like that. That's probably like the only baking that my mom did (laughs) was pancakes or like an icebox key lime pie every once in a while, that sort of thing. But for her, it had to be simple. And like we, birthdays, we got plain cake, like plain box cake cut into squares. Wow. Um, Which actually is so in my consciousness that I don't even eat frosting. I like to take a piece of like warm vanilla cake and put butter on it. (laughs) Ooh, that sounds delicious. I'm the opposite. I love the frosting. But my mom was a baker, right? We spent, I mean, I can remember many, many days of, you know, licking the bowl of the cookie dough or the frosting or whatever she was making. Yeah. Yeah, I... That was definitely something that I had to sort of bring into the family situation. So and, interesting. Uh, was she just health conscious or what was? Yeah, she, she, my mom's family's from the Midwest and sort of the, the meat and threes with the overcooked veggies <laughs> and at least her experience growing up and always dessert on the table, always, always, always. She felt that as a teen dealing with body issues and, and just growing up, she felt that it just wasn't a great way to like, you know, to grow up, to be criticized, but yet the way that you're being fed is like. Right, right. <laughs> it's making you that way. It's making you that way. So she was just quite strict about all of that. I mean, I remember my dad would, my mom would go out of town for work um, and my dad would take us to the store and be like, get everything you want. You've got like 20 minutes. And she would always wonder why we're like sick when she would come back. (laughs) Yes. I love that. I love that. So what happened? Did you follow that passion of cooking in school or after school? So I was totally devoted to dance. I was not modern and ballet dancer, you know, very seriously. I also was like a child actor and I was, you know, auditioning and in things and modeling and stuff. And I was very much focused on that. My school also had a high academic focus. So, you know, and I was doing sports and just very busy, but I was really just always cooking at home. I never thought about it as anything that I could do. Um, I was just very, very focused on being a dancer. And, but it's funny the whole time, I guess from high school on, when I began to start cooking dinner parties and, you know, cooking whole meals for my parents, friends and people coming over and people kept telling me, oh, you're missing your calling. You're missing your calling. Ah. But at that point, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't even a thing. I started just over the years getting more deeply into the complexities that can happen when you're cooking, you know, making duck and, you know, venturing into other cuisines and making fresh spring rolls or lumpia or different things because that whole journey, I was also collecting cookbooks. And then I'm also just 
cooking and, you know, just feeding people, you know, and just continuously growing these little dinner parties <laughs> and things and, you know, impressing my family with things, but still it was over my head as far as thinking I would ever make like any kind of career of it. I actually ended up after college, I ended up finally becoming a professional dancer. I mean, I was professional somewhat throughout high school, but my parents were very strict on education. So, you know, when I finally was an adult and could make that decision, I was on pop tours in Europe and I was living there and I was touring and, but very quickly after about two years of living on the road like that, I realized that I, I was disillusioned, I guess, with this career and the fact that I had worked so hard for it and you finally get to where you think you want to be and it's not what you thought it was. You know, I had a dance teacher um, when I was 16. I went away to New York to do a program at Alvin Ailey. And that was a huge deal because it was a big audition and I got it and my parents, you know, reluctantly but happily let me go. And so when I came back uh, to high school to finish, my dance teacher who had been a part of Alvin Ailey himself in California had said, you know, if you're going to be a dancer, you live without love, you live without money, you live in pain. Like, you know, I mean, it was totally the Debbie Allen <laughs> fame speech, fame cost sort of thing. So once I got to that point, I realized I was like, yeah, I'm like alone in Europe. I, my friends are not people I really know. I'm constantly, you know, you're, you are constantly in pain. Like I was touring and dancing and then off time, I was teaching children's ballet and children's jazz. And it's just a constant physicality. You know, you are a professional athlete. I don't know that people really think of it that way or say that, but that's what you are. I mean, I've been eating in a particular way you know, my whole life since like four years old, you're sort of conditioned, your body is, you know, a certain way. And, you know, and I was just sort of like lonely and a bit tired. And also I realized that I had all this training and I was sort of felt like I was just shaking it on pop tours. Like it, I was still dancing, but it, it just was weird. I did love touring. I loved all of the experiences, but I realized I don't want to be a dance teacher. I wasn't sure what else I was going to be doing. I didn't want to be part of dance company as I had done that as a teenager. And, you know, I had other financial goals and living in Europe for me was the best way to dance because you really are much more respected there. And there's much more work opportunities, at least in my opinion. But I couldn't also audition and do other things in the American market. So I was just kind of like, is this what it is? I'm not sure if I want to do this. So I came back to the States and I 
And by the way, even in Europe, I found opportunities to like cater small things and, you know, it was just, I was still cooking and introducing foods like gumbo and things to people there that were like, had never had it. Had it. Yeah. And um, so when I came back to the States, I immediately said, well, what am I going to do? I started working in production because I know what that is. So I was a junior producer, an AP, a production coordinator. I worked at a trailer house called Motion, which is an amazing, famous production company now. You know, I did voiceovers. I did just everything. I still was acting. I still was modeling. And I just was behind the scenes. I just said, I, this is what I know how to do. So I did that. But again, the whole time I'm cooking, I'm cooking, I'm cooking, I'm cooking. At this point, I even catered my brother's entire wedding. Wow. Yes. Me and my girlfriend who I enlisted to help me, who is a makeup artist, but who is Hawaiian and Japanese, and she could cook anything. I mean, and it was these experiences that just kept bringing me deeper into food. Like my friend Kim and I, we cooked so much together. I learned so many techniques from her. I was showing her like the things that I grew up eating and doing. And then I was cooking these big meals for people and they were getting more fanciful and more interesting. And then, like I said, my brother's wedding, like he told me, he and his ex-wife told me, we want your food. It's your food we want. And I was like, I don't, I don't know if I can do that, uh, but I did it. We did how it. How many people? It was Remember? like a hundred people. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. And you yeah. did it out of your kitchen? I did it out of my kitchen. I did it out of like the makeshift kitchen that they had at the wedding. I mean, it was, yeah, I literally did not know a thing about doing something on this scale. And he says, people still talk about the food. Amazing. And I'm like, that is amazing because now I would do even better. <laughs> I would do an even better job. So at that point is when I started realizing that I might want to go to culinary school or do something like that. Then I also realized that I have an intense amount of student loans from Bryn Mawr College, mm-hmm. <laughs> like an intense amount. And so that became a struggle. How do I, is this the only way into food? How do I do this? I kept researching pastry programs because that was my first thought was like, you know, I'm going to do pastry. I kept researching everything. I couldn't figure out how to make it happen, you know? Plus I had this really good production job at this point. And, you know, I was like a junior producer at this point. So... I just couldn't figure it out. And you know how life waylays you or takes you on a path. I had an extremely short-lived marriage to a chef. And it caused me to move and be in that sort of chef world. And at this point, I'm still trying to get into food and figure things out. And as my husband at that time got to know me. He was like, oh, you're good enough already. You don't, no, you don't, don't do culinary school work. 
you just need to work. And so I used his contacts to get a few jobs in the front of the house. And then I just pushed my way to the back of the house. <laughs> and that's how I started, you know, just like he said, he said, apprentice, right. you just, all you have to do is apprentice. He's like, you can do this. You, and then at that point, I realized something. I had a small child already. I was grown. I've lived on my own in Europe. I've already been to college. I, I'm not going to be crying at work. <laughs> I, I'm going to get there and I'm going to do this. So I was waitressing. I became a barista at the cafe that I was a barista. I started giving them my recipes. They realized I was a good baker. Then I started baking there. I mean, it was that kind of thing. Right. I just started working my butt off at odd and odd cooking jobs. My hugest inspiration, one of my hugest inspirations is um, our, is Valerie, who is the chef of Geechee Girl Rice Cafe in Germantown, Philadelphia. She is, um, she and her sister Lee own this restaurant. They hired me at a, as a waitress at that time because I was living in Philadelphia. And she's one of those people that I just moved in on and soaked up everything I could from her. And she was like, agreed, you can do food. You can cook. You're going to do this. And she helped me with so many things. And I learned so much about food and the experience and working in a restaurant. Um, and they were, and she and her sister were just so giving. And they are culture ambassadors because I had never even realized that there was an actual Geechee restaurant. She knew all the best chefs in town. She was, you know, highly regarded and therefore was a nurturer and a giver. And that's what food people are. So that is where I turned the corner. And I never looked back in that sense. Wow. So now you're in Philadelphia and you're kind of under Valerie's wing. What, what catapulted, like, where did you go? Did you start well, cooking on your own in a restaurant? Well, what I did after that was, like I said, it was a very short-lived marriage. So things sort of happened very fast and blew up very fast. And I had to decide what I wanted to do. So I realized that uh, my best friend in the world was living in New York. My son's dad was in New York, and that was where I should be. Even though I didn't have anything there and it, I knew it was going to be the toughest city ever. So I packed up with Dakota and we headed to Brooklyn and I talked my way into a head baker job at Magnolia. Wow. Yeah. And I, and I just cranked it out. I was one of the last people hired when it was what it was, when Elisa Tori was still there a touch, but leaving the business. 
she she was just selling it basically. So I was trained in the original way there. And I um, just took it in, soaked it all up. I learned how to do massive amounts of things fast, you know? And again, I, I'm, I'm natural with faking. It just sort of like, it's something that I, I feel in terms of me at home. Like I said, my mom did not have like a mixer at all. She just had the, the hand one. Right. So I learned everything with a wooden spoon, wow. um, you know, doughs, everything. So as I became trained, you know, in the back of the house from all of these experiences of working at these cafes and different places, once I got to Magnolia, it was pretty easy for me to translate the volume and the speed with a sense of quality. And that's actually where I began to have a second disillusionment in my life was sort of becoming of higher position there and having people underneath me that I had to train and work with that, you know, you come in at four in the morning on, on your baker shift and I'm going through the racks and looking at everything and seeing that well, these things are overmixed and these things are this or these things are that. And, you know, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of cupcakes or whatever's going on. Right. And for me, that also started this new challenge of, well, I like to do everything perfect, even at high speed. And it should, when someone buys a $6 cupcake, it should be the same way every time right. they buy it. And so I, I began to realize, and it's kind of my whole life, my parents have a very, very strong work ethic. And I began to realize that, that sometimes it's always in conflict with experiences. Like, like I've never gotten fired, not because I loved every job, but just because I can like hear my parents' voices about the quality of what you're supposed to be doing. And I would be so shame. It would fill me with shame if I was not doing the best or the most. So as I began my cooking journey, I realized that there's those inconsistencies that can happen just they bother me intensely. <laughs> and for me, I realized that one of the hallmarks of my work was that I really have a feel for it and I really pay attention to it. And then my fine art background was coming into that. And while I was at Magnolia, I ended up meeting um, Kathy Cook, who was a prop stylist. She now owns a bakery herself or a bakery business. She came into Magnolia as my intern, believe it or not. Ah. Yes. And now they didn't know that she was like a really successful prop stylist. <laughs> um, and I didn't know either. But she watched me and worked under me 
And she also saw how difficult that experience was. As I grew with the company, um, the company had been sold and started turning into a, a huge, they still had the new owner, but it became an operation where they're opening stores in like all these cities and Dubai and all these places. And the human resources aspect of the company, so many issues were going on. Um, and I was dealing with all of it. You know, I believed, for instance, all of the bakers should have health insurance because, you know, myself, we're like on management level at this point. They weren't doing any of that. And so, you know, I was keeping my work high quality, but also making some noise. And I was just like, not happy. And I realized that that is also a very difficult part of the restaurant industry. This wasn't anything new. Not everybody is going to be Valerie and Lee and have this, you know, wonderful, like vibe about who they are as people. And I began to see that all of these restaurant experiences I'm having, I'm working alongside the best, toughest, smartest, fastest, most skilled, amazing people that are mostly immigrants and they are not getting their due. And these are just, oh my God, when you talk about people say things about being unskilled, no, the skill level is high, high, high. And yet- And work ethic. Yes. And the, the pay and everything else is not commensurate. And also the sexism that I'm experiencing in the kitchen. Like it just was where it's so hot in this kitchen. I was like, I want to get out. I realized that someone had once told me the quicker you learn a lesson, the quicker you get out of a situation and onto your next thing. So I began to think of my life in that way of, hmm, all right. So now I'm a chef. but I don't like working in restaurants and in these businesses I don't like it so cycling back to Kathy when she left her internship she pulled me aside and she said you're not meant for this you're meant for something else and this makes me emotional because She doesn't realize she's a very humble person, but she changed my life. And um, for a woman to reach out that way to another woman and share that experience, she said, "You you are a food stylist. And I said, what is that? Right. And you're a what? And you're not really an intern? I mean, it was like, ah. Right. But she just said, I, I watched you handle yourself. I've watched you do this. I've watched your, your skill level, your quality. You just, there's something better for you. So she invited me to her apartment. She brought over a food stylist, Adrian Anderson. And they sat down and spent their personal time and told me about this career and and taught me 
how to be a food stylist assistant, you know, over, you know, a, a few drinks and a yellow pad, <laughs> you know? Amazing. And I came away from that meeting with this yellow pad full of names of food stylists, what you do on set, just all of this stuff, which once I realized what this job was, it started to make perfect sense to me. And, and I already knew how to be on set. So I was really intrigued and just excited and all my, um, all my nerve endings were bubbling with this idea of food and art and BTS and Right, it all came together. Production again. Yeah, it just right. was like, oh my God. So I was also armed with this moment of, okay, now I have to email these people. And I also have to go back over the million cookbooks that I've collected and look at them again and realize that these beautiful pictures were not Mr. and Mrs. Famous Chef. <laughs> this That's is right. somebody else. And it just changed my whole perspective of these things that I was in love with, these books. And, and I was always in love with cookbooks and even as a child, getting them as presents and stuff. So it was just a true mind F <laughs> right. of like, wait a second. There's these people that like do this thing. And that's why I'm in love with these photos and this collaborative thing. And so after that meeting, you know, Adrian told me, well, hey, I have a couple jobs. I'll hire you. And I was like, oh, my God. So she literally hired me just off of meeting me. And I went to Atlanta with her and did a huge Publix job. Um. And then I realized I'm really good at this. Like I said, like I'm grown. So I don't, I didn't have any ego about the dishwashing or the, you know, constant Lepping. maintenance, the schlepping. <laughs> I was amazing at turkey surgery. This was a huge, you know, turkey <laughs> thing. I immediately, you know, started doing things and realized I'm really good at like moving skin around and doing these things. And then also Adrian was fabulous because she was really easy as far as, okay, well, here's a better way to Supreme an orange, just like this. And then left, she's one of those people who empowers you and then leaves you to do it. But, you know, so I was very fortunate in not having a, an aggressive experience like I know some assistants have have had in my right. industry, which is another thing I want us to chat about <laughs> because I yeah, uh, we had who do well, we had um Victoria Granoff on and mm -hmm. she had some really interesting stories about who she came up under. <laughs> oh wow, yeah. I I think I was blessed to miss a lot of that because I feel like 
divinely for me because this was a second career. And because like I always say, I was already somebody's mama. So you're just not going to talk to me any kind of way. It's right. just not happening. You know, I, I had a couple of moments where I had to, you know, pull someone aside and say, look, I'm here to make you shine. I'm willing to do anything you need to do, but we're not going to talk like that. You know, we are not going to speak to each other that way. And I know you're not going to be speaking to me that way. So if this is an issue, you know, just let me know now. Whereas I think younger assistants, they are, you know, so open and so eager and thinking that this might be okay, the way they're getting treated, or they have to do this, like, no. And, you know, I just wasn't raised to be that way. I wasn't raised to treat other people that way. So fortunately, the people that I was work wife too, because you really start working with people and you work with them a lot, were just very dignified and graceful. I um, had the opportunity to work um, for Michael Pedersen quite a lot, and he was gracious and lovely and focused and firm, but never mean. <laughs> you know what I mean? So right. I, I, I'm fine with uh, a firm hand, but fortunately I didn't have any like crazy things go on because I just, I didn't have the time. Like I needed to take all this in and keep it moving. Well, meanwhile, were you, you were a single mom, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Working full time on a set. That's a lot. Yes. It was, it was huge. Um, Fortunately, when I had moved back to Brooklyn, um, I moved in with my best friend. And not only did she take him to school and such when I would get home at five in the morning <laughs> with my breakfast as my dinner when I was baking, but once I transitioned to assisting food stylists, she was right there. Um, and she was the one who convinced me to come to Brooklyn anyway, because she was like, you know, I know you're hurting. I know this is difficult, but I'm here and we're going to do this and I'll help you. And then my son's father was finally like nearby and he's always been a hundred percent with his child. So it was so much easier than us doing full summers and vacations back and forth with Dakota because I had lived in California for a while when he was young. Now, you know, his dad was happy as a clam having him nearby. And so the village just helped me work with him while I took this on. And, you know, like I, as I started to move into assisting, you know, I ended up having a new relationship and a second child because at this time in my life, since it's a second career, I can't stop my, the forward movement of my actual life to do this. Sure. It was still really hard because even within my relationship, there was, oh, are you sure you should be doing this? How are you going to make any money? Like, how is this going to happen? Like, 
this doesn't seem like, you know, because there was that thing of, okay, I'm going to go fully freelance. It's like, how do you do this? And I started realizing that quite a lot of stylists are independently wealthy or have a background that allows them to do this job. And I didn't have any of that going for me. You know, I didn't have, it was me. I was paying my own bills. And, you know, like I said, I have kids. I was pregnant when I fully went freelance. And uh, also I was, you know, the only woman of color food stylist, aspiring food stylist that I had ever seen. Mostly the only person that looks like me on every single set I was ever on in this industry. Wow, let's talk about that. Yeah, that was difficult because people hire their friends and it's a very insular business or, Mm -hmm. you know, people get their recommendations, however, um, and they are amongst each other and there's no reason for them to reach out and think, well, hmm, everyone looks like me on set. I find, I've always found it funny in my entire life how, you know, I have experienced everything within my experience in the U.S. through a white lens as far as being one of a few Black girls in my school, being the only Afro-Cuban everywhere, like in spaces, um, you know, everywhere. Um, So I have friends of all, you know, walks of life, but yet so many people that I know don't have any Black people within their universe at all. And so for them, they, they just don't even think that every day they go to work on set and they see the same people. Every single person looks like them. And honestly, the only thing they're thinking about is, oh, maybe there's not enough women, or I want to see women photographers, or I want to see whatever. They don't think anything else. Meanwhile, once I get on the scene, I am always, I'm the only color in this piece every single time. Every single time. Even today, you think? Is it still well, today? Today it's a little better, but it's better because so many dams burst, right? you know, after George Floyd, it's even better for me, you know, and I had, I've had people say, oh, um, does that make you feel funny that, you know, you might be getting more work now because of whatever. And I'm like, no, because I have the receipts. I've been sitting on this portfolio of mine grinding for years. I assisted for six years. Wow. I didn't 
come up in here and assist for one year, like so many people now and say, oh, I'm, I'm ready. I assisted for a ton of people, one-offs, some people many times, all over the place, different cities, different types of jobs. As a food stylist, like, you know, my book has advertising, video, editorial, conceptual, like it has everything because I, as a black woman, did not have the luxury of just getting jobs and being fed in one discipline or in one area. And, you know, that has been very difficult. I remember my book being sent to certain imprints over and over and over and over again. And then all of a sudden it was, wow, have we ever worked with a black food stylist? Have we ever hired a black food stylist? Wow, like we need to find one. Boom, here I am. All of a sudden I'm hired now. Um, and honestly, if it's not me or Roscoe, then no, you have not hired a black food stylist. And you could have, right? Because there is enough work. There are enough opportunities out there. And you know, the other thing that also bothers me intensely is this idea that, oh well the work was given to the people who are, who have the talent and who have the skills. And, you know, when you talk about Roscoe Betzel or now talk about me, I have receipts for days. I will give you a receipt. I will show you that I have done that and I have made that happen. And that's because both of us have had to build our books to an extreme level of variety, et cetera, because it is so hard for us to be considered and get past the gatekeepers. So now that some of those gatekeepers have been, you know, just, I don't want to say punished, but admonished perhaps. <laughs> Shook up or yeah woke. yeah yeah woke or or <laughs> fired um, right <laughs> you know yeah then people are like oh wow she's really good or you know they're really great or whatever. how have we not heard of her right how have we not heard of her and then it's kind of like well yeah I'm still okay with that because now when you see another person who looks like me or you get these emails from these random assistants and you Google them or you look them up, maybe you will be more inclined to hire them. And maybe you will be more inclined to give them a shot to diversify your set. Because part of the reason it hasn't changed that much is because there were no assistants. Like I was the only one for so long, <laughs> you know? And now, there are a few more. Like when I go to hire assistants, I'm like totally pleased and shocked because I actually have 
men of color, women of color that are within my roster of people I can reach out to. And, you know, I want to be there and I want to, you know, help them if I can, if I may. And I also, and this is another reason why I, you know, I believe in mentorship, you know, like what Kathy Cook did for me. You, there's no reason for me to be the mean diva food stylist. <laughs> it's just not the way I like to run my sets. Right. It's not the way I like to run my business. And, and those future, you know, Black, American, Black, Latino, food stylists, um, you know, Asian women, you know, though that future of people of color in this behind the scenes work with food, they have a lot more challenges than other people. You know, it's not generalizing for me to say that for the most part, you're not going to find the independently wealthy food stylist assistant in my community that has parental resources or whatever it is so that you can front a job. And this is one of the things as I get to know my assistants that I'm readily available to talk about because it's something I still struggle with. The fact that how how are you going to tell, and you couldn't have told me at this time, you know, this young Afro-Latina, you couldn't have told me at this time that I would need thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars just to do one or two food styling jobs as a lead key stylist. That is a huge barrier to me for young people of color trying to come up into this space. That is a huge barrier because even one of the reasons I kept assisting you know, I remember um, I was assisting Carrie Purcell quite a lot, and she was really awesome because she, she was telling me, stop picking up the phone when I call. I want you to assist me, but stop because you're ready. And I was like, no, girl, I have babies. I have to feed my babies. <laughs> I'm going to be assisting because there's this, there's this, thought that if you are assisting still, the clients won't see you in any other way. Right. But that's another thing culturally is something that doesn't resonate with me because for me, it was like, that's not going to happen. That I can't even think that way. I have to feed my kids. So I'm going to be assisting and you're still going to see me as someone you could hire later. I'm going to figure it out. And that's what I did. I still got key jobs, lead jobs, and also was had a foot into assisting. But when Carrie said that to me, she was right in that way of like, there is a point when I have to take the plunge. Sure. You know, for me, it wasn't what somebody's image of me was because as a black woman, I knew it was going to be hard. It, it had been hard the whole way. So, you know, I knew it was going to be hard, um, you know, 
and in that way, I knew that I needed to um, just figure it out. And I had to keep assisting because when I decided to take the plunge as a full-on two feet in lead stylist, I remember I had called together $10,000, like, like, like cold together. <laughs> and I'm like, great. I'm, I'm ready. I was in a pile of tears after two weeks because that was like three jobs. Will you explain what you mean by that? Is it because you have to front the food costs? Is that it's because yeah. you have to front the food costs, pay for your assistance, all of that stuff. So I did, I did like one cookbook and two ad jobs and that entire thing was out the window. Wow. That was it. You know what I, I mean? And for me, yeah. as yeah. this person who has kids living their own life, who had been a single mother at points and still, because I have, you know, a child from a prior relationship, like I'm still a single mom. Like I, I was stunned. I mean, it, and paying rent in New York and living your life and trying right. to get things done. Like I was like, I can't take in any more jobs because I have no more money. And then the fact that these huge companies with all of the resources they have take three months to pay you. It's impossible. Yeah, the money is, I think that's an interesting thing to point out about having to have something to rely on if you, if someone doesn't pay on time. That's a really good tip for people who don't think about that. Yeah, it's very difficult. And is, what led you to being repped? Did that help? Was that part that, of the catalyst? Of yeah, I, I, I got repped pretty early on because like I said, I, I had to do so many things by myself that I really was a hustler. And also because I was a child actor, I already had agents my whole life. So I already knew how that what that relationship is about. And I didn't think that you get an agent and you sit down, <laughs> you know, like right. I would always, my first agent, James Taylor of James reps, who was phenomenal for me. We built something really great together. You know, Jerry, um, a prop stylist, she introduced me. She was the only other black woman I had ever seen on set, Jerry Williams. And she immediately was like, we're going to get you an agent. I'm going to introduce you to my agent. No one else offered me that. No one else. Hmm. Everyone, it's so territorial, but it's, it's just not because what's for me is for me and what's for you is for you. So right. you helping or mentoring is not going to interrupt your flow. So Jerry knew that, and she has that giving spirit. So she introduced me to him. And, um, you know, he immediately said about just helping me know that I needed to keep testing because I was testing all the time. But I saw how people come and go through agencies because they think the agent's just supposed to get them work. And I was like, 
know, like I said, I know what it means to have an agent. I have to constantly be making things that they can sell for me. I need to, I would find one, a reason once a week to email or call him. Like I met this person, I'd love to da, 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 you know, I made that a point on my calendar. Um, he doesn't know that, but <laughs> now that we're friends, <laughs> but I made it a point. Like I need to reach out every week for something. And then he began to see that I was doing my own work, making my own contacts, doing testing, constantly sending him stuff, getting things going. Then he had something to, to reach out about. And I also told myself, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be the, the top earner at, you know, my agency. I want to do that. So I just always say things like that in my head so that I can just like go do it. Nice. And we, you know, we ended up like really cracking. I finally started to be busier. I also realized something that younger stylists need to realize is before you go freelance, you need to think about how many days of work you physically need in order to make your month for your bills. And I realized that, okay, I need nine days of work so that I can at least buy groceries. Like, you know what I mean? Like, right. so you, you start with that goal and you're like, okay, I need nine days. And that's based on your lowest rate. And then maybe you get something that cuts that to four days because the rate is a little better or whatever, but you have to have that in your mind. And so those mental tricks were also what sort of helped me get ahead somewhat in, in styling. And James ended up leaving the particular type of repping that he was doing. So I had to find a new agent. He's back. But um, he left the business for a little bit. And so I had to find a new agent. And I was so scared. Here I am again, you know, with that lifetime imposter syndrome feeling of, I don't know how to do this again. Like, I don't know, can I even get another agent? But when... Mary and I reconnected because she used to work with Carrie Purcell. So I had at least met Mary and everything like that. You know, she was like, I've been wanting to have you on the roster. And I was like, Oh my God. Like, you know, um, you know, she is such another mentor, you know, a person that says, no, you are good at this look at these photos. Like, no, but in my head, because the struggle has been so long. And I do think there's a bit of PTSD in that sense of being, you know, being a black woman, being an Afro Latin black woman that has had just the lifetime of challenges of, of being considered no matter that I have gone to a women's Ivy and I've done this and I've done that. And so I never feel secure in that. So I'm always like, I need to get more work or get more stuff from my portfolio or keep doing this, or keep doing that. Because you just wonder if the, the ground, you know, the bottom is going to fall out. So when I came over to Big Leo, it was 
amazing for me because it was the same wonderful nurturing experience that I have with James, like another amazing, trustworthy, ethical person that I meet, you know, win-win, but then it's a bigger agency. So that helped me expand even more because, you know, Mary's right hand, Willie Mullins, Willie is my actual agent and he better not ever leave my side. <laughs> I don't think he will. I think he better, he better not ever, <laughs> ever. I mean, like he is, he is like me. He is like, he is on it and he yeah. is like hungry. And that's what I wanted was an agency and people that are hungry, but also just amazing. And, you know, Willie and Mary just, I don't know if they realize how much they keep me afloat as, you know, a single mom of two, a child in college, a child in, in junior high. They still help me get things done or get to the next job when I haven't been paid in eons or, you know, even at this level where I've finally, you know, where people are saying, oh, you're a top tier food stylist. I'm like, uh, what? Like even at this level where I finally feel like I'm getting somewhere, you know, it's still such a hard business to be in. Um, so I know some people feel that having an agent is expensive, but I, that money is the best money spent to me, to me, because I need more than me looking for jobs for me. I'm doing it. Willie's doing it. Mary's doing it. Um, Kimberly's doing it. You know, like there's all of us now helping all of the people in the roster. But I know that like all this team is helping me and they also protect you. Like my rates got better because people negotiate with you differently when you have an agency, you know, certain things slow down in a way. But for me, especially as a black woman, I, I got to have an agent because they helped me get past a lot of the gates. And Willie truly understands some of the BS I deal with. You know, like, I don't ever wear aprons on set, ever, ever. Because clients will go right to my 20-year-old assistant thinking that they're me. Unbelievable. And you know. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And I started to realize that, okay, well, you know, I, it's just sort of an internal, it's just a thing, you know, like when you are, when you look like me and you look of service, people will instantly treat you like you are serving them. And so, you know, I've had to like pull together a bit of a uniform that I can get spaghetti sauce on, but I still look a little yeah. bit more like the boss in a certain way. You know, it's stuff like that. And, and right. Willie gets, he gets all of that. And he also gets 
how, you know, there is something to like appreciate about my background and my experiences. And he gets that. So he can also approach clients, you know, with that in mind. And, uh, you know, they're just, they're just everything. I just, they're family. And I feel like you know, people bounce around to agencies. I'm like, I'm good. <laughs> I'm very good. <laughs> you know, they'll be very. Uh, they know that I think, but they're. But as as an agent, that's the that's the most important thing yeah. to hear from an artist. They're fantastic, yeah. and yeah. they also will will like create jobs. You know, they mm-hmm. they're also like thinking about clients and meeting with people. You know, like they they're creative. Both of them, you know, Willie's an artist himself and, you know, they're just creative people. So they, they always think that way. So I feel like I, I, I have a home Yeah, and I feel like I finally, um, am getting somewhere. (laughs) Yes. I mean, you're, yeah, I, I'm so, we could, I'm definitely want to have you back because we could go on forever. There's so many good things to talk about, about your career and, I'm so appreciative that you took the time to spend with us this morning because it was Thank you. really cool to hear your story. I've obviously known you for a few years, but I, I didn't know how it all evolved. Yes. And and just to hear, I think it's great for you know people out there to hear the challenges, not just as a woman, but a woman of color and what that means as a stylist, as a food yes. stylist in particular. We all yeah. know what it means as a photographer and we know what it means you know, maybe as a producer, but I think that's, um, an area that's not talked a lot about is food styling. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's such a niche an job and it's so it secret. It's it so is. secret. And like you said, I think you, the previous food stylists we've had on have like you have assisted for many, many years in order to get where they are. And I yeah. think that's really important for the younger generation to realize. Yeah. Um, that you if have I could to pay your dues, you, you know? have to. And if I could like leave them with that last thought that, um, like, I know you're ambitious, but when you get in front of a client that would like you to pivot and you don't know how to pivot, that's where the holes in your skill set come down. Not food styling is not all a guessing game and you have to be on many advertising sets and many this and many that not only to learn techniques but then to learn problem solving and how to be calm enough to let the 20 people that are peering so deeply into the one piece of broccoli on the screen that you have to know how to alter things or work through things. And one year or two years is not going to teach you that. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much. Tell people where they can see your work. How do they find you, Micah? Um, they find me on www.bigleo.com. Um, and my Instagram is curlygirlcooks, all one word. Yeah, right now I'm reformulating my website 
because the web company that was hosting my site uh, died. So now I'm back to square one. And I am a food stylist, not a web designer. So this is a bit of a problem right now. But uh, Big Leo, you know, lovingly puts all my work up. So I'm relying on that right now. Perfect. Perfect. And you can find us at focusonwomen.org. Make sure to subscribe at iTunes or Spotify. And everybody stay safe and keep your creative juices flowing. Bye. Thank you.